Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. Hey, are you ready for some football? Some fantasy football? How about some daily fantasy football? Silly questions, right? Of course you are. You're ready to talk some smack and win some cash every Sunday, and Thursday, and Monday, and whenever there's football games. The Sports History Network invites you to play your daily fantasy football this season at thrivefantasy.com. Thrive Fantasy offers hundreds of thousands, millions in cash every day on NBA, MLB, PGA, golf, cricket, esports, and of course, NFL football. Every week during the 2021 NFL season, Thrive Fantasy has pool play contests and heads-up matches with prizes of all sizes, and even free play contests for real money. Sign up with Thrive Fantasy today to get a 100% match bonus on your first deposit for up to $100 in free daily fantasy football play. Visit sportshistorynetwork.com slash thrive, that's T-H-R-I-V-E, or enter promo code S-H-N when positing at the cashier. Join Thrive Fantasy today, earn cash prizes, and support great shows like this at the Sports History Network. Now that's a win-win-win situation for you to kick off your own NFL season. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, old sports. Welcome to the Hello, Old Sports podcast on the Sports History Network. My name is Dan Newman, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host and brother, Andrew Newman. Today's topic is Philadelphia, Philadelphia sports. We've talked about some sports in Philadelphia in the past, but specifically this time around, we're going to be talking about a magical year, the magical year of 1980 in Philadelphia sports. Andrew, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, Dan. I'm uh, excited to put on my LaSalle shirt and uh, have a hoagie and talk about the Eagles and the the Flyers. And uh, there's only a few words I can do in the accent, but hoagie, (laughs) Eagles and LaSalle are a couple of them. So um, we will uh, get in touch with, I guess, our Philadelphia roots, but talk about a very fascinating time when there was a lot of good games at the spectrum, May of 1980. You know, it's funny. I had really never heard this talked about. I kind of just, and I know you're like me and probably a lot of the people who listen to this show. It's like, yeah, I'm a sports history kind of like uh, in my head. I think sometimes just like I'll be doing something or sometimes when I'm exercising and I'm trying to avoid how much I don't like doing that. So I try to go somewhere else in my head and I'll be thinking like, okay, how far back can I go on the Super Bowls or the World Series or the NBA finals in my head? And I don't know. I guess I just all pieced it together one time like, oh, wow. In like a seven month span, all four Philadelphia teams went to the championship. And then I Googled it and I was like, there has to be articles about this. And there are, but there's not a million of them like 
in New York, the 94 final or the spring of 1994, the fact that the Rangers and the Knicks were both in the finals at the same time is a huge deal. Even 30 years later, Philly. And I mean, maybe some of it's that only one of the four won, but like, I feel like this would be a much, much like more well-known thing than it is. Yeah. And I wonder, I actually, I have a few different theories there. Part of me wonders if it's because only one team actually won a championship and we'll obviously talk more about that. Also, maybe at least in the NBA, it was sort of just sort of starting to come into its own as a major league. If it had happened three or four years later, you know, during the Magic Bird era, maybe it would have meant a little more. So those are two things that I maybe think maybe had a little bit something to do with it, sort of when it happened and also the fact that only one of the teams won. You know, I was watching in preparation for this. Actually, usually I look at a lot of books to prepare. And this time I looked at a couple of books and watched a lot of videos on YouTube. I watched a video on the 80. Phillies, a video on the 80 Eagles, and then I watched the game six of the 1980 NBA finals. And several times during the clip of the, you know, during the broadcast of the 1980 NBA finals, uh, the big capital letters flashed across the screen videotaped earlier. So at least in some places, the game didn't even air live. So I wonder if maybe that had a little bit of something to do with it as well. And you were the one who sort of came up with this idea, as you said. I try to think you really I really am trying to think if there's any other years that you can look at as sort of big years for sports in one particular city. Everybody always talks about 69 in New York. And that's kind of weak because people all gloss over that part of it. They, They don't they don't get that right. Go ahead. Sorry. All three teams, first of all, it was three teams, not four. It was the Jets, the Mets, and the Knicks. Two of them barely count, and they were forgettable championships. I don't think any of them were forgettable championships. And I think, honestly... No, no, Super Bowl three, I'm going on. Super Bowl three, the Miracle Mets, and the 1970, you know, the Willis-Reed-Nick teams, those are all legendary, in the, you know, in the history of sports. In our previous issue, previous episode, I read through that Bob Costas book about the greatest 20th century sports moments and all three of those moments were in there, but yes, all teams, all three teams did play games in the year 1969, but for the jets, it was just the one super bowl, you know, just the super bowl game and maybe the AFL championship. I'd have to look at a calendar. The Mets were obviously all in 69 and then the Knicks started their season in 69 and won the championship in May of 1970. The easiest way to sort of, explain why it's not all one year is that by the time the Knicks won a championship, there had been a whole other football season that had been entirely played. And there was a whole new Super Bowl champion that was not the Jets. It was the Kansas City Chiefs. So that's one. And then I know about 10, 12 years ago in Boston, the Red Sox won the World Series in 07 in October. The Patriots made to the Super Bowl in 08 and lost the Giants. And then the Celtics won the Stanley, I'm sorry, the Celtics won the NBA Finals, the NBA Championship in 2008. So that's the only other one that I feel like, those are the only other two that I feel like you can really point to where it was like multiple in one city in one year. Tampa recently is another good one, I guess. Yeah, well, Tampa, all three of them, all three of their teams got to the championship round just in the last year. The Lightning actually did it twice in a calendar. True. The one I had never put together... And they only won one of them, but 
the calendar year of 1986 in Boston. Yeah, for with those three teams. The same three teams, yeah. I think we need to at some point this year, while it's still uh, somewhat of an anniversary, while it's still 35 years away, I think we need to do an episode on 1986 because that was such a crazy year in sports between the team sports, not to mention Mike Tyson and Jack Nicholas and all sorts of other stuff. So I think that that might need to be a, an episode at some point before, before 2021 is out. We should do it in October, right around game six. <laughs> no, I'm saying that's the most, it's a, it's one of the only times it's left and B it's the most monumental. Yeah. Also, no. 1986 in Boston, by the way, the Intercontinental Championship was stolen from Tito Santana by Macho Man Randy Savage. <laughs> you know, it's funny, though. You, if you think this is the last time wrestling is coming up in this podcast, you're wrong. <laughs> okay. It does kind of it, it does. It is kind of funny. Like, you know, like even when I, you look back at, you know, sports from like the Knicks from the late 80s, early 90s, and you think about how cool it must have been, to you know, just watch MSG network every night. Cause it was either the Knicks, the Rangers, or, you know, something wrestling from the garden or something. So sometimes wrestling does kind of sneak its way in a little bit. So anyway, before we get started, just a reminder to give us a like on iTunes or any other podcast app of choice. I today or yesterday made the monumental decision to change podcasting apps from Apple podcasts to Spotify because Apple podcasts had been frozen on my phone for over two months. So I hadn't been able to listen to any podcasts. So I finally went to Spotify and I'm satisfied with that so far. So you can find us all sorts of places beyond just on iTunes. You can also email us hello old sports at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook. Hello old sports podcast. You can check us out at the sports history network website, sports history Com. And also, while you're at it, check out some of the other great shows that we have on the Sports History Network. We're still adding new ones uh, at, you know, at every couple of weeks. But they seem to add another podcast. So Arnie and the gang really doing a good job there. So we encourage you to check out some of those. And yeah, we appreciate and thank and uh, hope you all are enjoying continuing to listen to us. Would you like to get started? I do. And uh, I would. And I guess we'll... Um probably do this chronologically sort of by team, meaning when each team's championship round ended, we're not going to go like, Oh, day by day or, or whatever. But you know, the time frame we're talking about sort of here is may of 1980 through January of 81, when all four teams championship rounds took place. So that means we'll be starting with the two winter sports, the Sixers and the flyers. I guess let's start with the Sixers that's probably the best place to start. And then we'll go to the flyers and then obviously move a little later in the calendar. Yeah, absolutely. So this was a sixer team that had been in the finals three years earlier. They, they had been sort of, they, so they won the championship in 67. They had that great team with Wilt that was 68 and 13. It's one of the best records still in the history of the NBA. They won the finals, uh, won the championship that year to throw in the Celtics had a couple more good years but then just uh, only six seasons after they had that amazing season in 67, they had one of the worst seasons in NBA history in 72, 73, where they were nine and 73. So 73 losses in 73. And they sort of sort of gradually started to crawl back hard to not crawl back when you've only won nine games. And 
in 75, 76, they were, had a winning record for the first time in years. They made the playoffs lost in the first round. And then the following year was the year of the merger. And that was when they traded for or purchased Julius Irving, Dr. J from the nets. And that team was really good went to the NBA finals, lost in six to Bill Walton and the Portland Trailblazers. And I think everybody kind of considered that series an upset. And then for the rest of the 70s and into the 80s, that that team was one of the powerhouses in the NBA. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. You know, 77 was sort of their best chance at the time. Dr. J comes into the NBA. It's his first, I don't want to say national stage, because people who knew who Dr. J was, but it was his first sort of, time with the full attention you know okay i obviously wasn't alive then but i i'm guessing that there was a lot of yes this guy's amazing but it is still the aba what could he do in the in the nba you know they're up i believe they were up two nothing in that series and then they mm-hmm. four games in a row and then the next year 77 78 they get to the finals the conference finals they lose to washington they uh are actually better record wise than they were really any of the next couple of years, they're 50, 55 and 27, then 78, 79, they backslide just a little bit, 47 and 35, and they lose in the Eastern Conference semifinals. So the modern equivalent of the second round, you know, each year here from 77, 78, 79, they're getting a little bit further away from the title. One thing that was worth noting is that the coach who had been their guy when they went to the finals early in the 77 78 season is replaced by Billy Cunningham who takes over 77 78 and then is the coach in 78 79 so it's not the same coach as was there for the team that made the finals in 77 and Cunningham is a hall of fame player who was on that 67 team with Wilt he's he along with Wilt and Hal Greer were sort of the leaders of that 66 67 team and you see that now sometimes and you you saw it then too, whereas a lot of times when a team is having a problem with its coach, they sometimes will look close to home for whoever they're going to bring in to try and get things back on the right track. And that's what the Sixers did with Cunningham, bringing in a guy who was already a well-known legendary player that had won a championship with the team while a player. And one thing I just wanted to point out, and maybe this is just me, but like, I can't help myself. And, and um, I'd actually kind of correct myself just in my own thinking, which is like, okay, we're talking about basketball in the 1980s. I know the very, very early eighties. And this is where my trip up came in. You know, we're talking about basketball in the, in the 1980s. We're talking about an Eastern conference team. I had to sort of get out of my head that like, Oh, this was like, you know, they had to contend with the mid Celtics, you know, bird was also a rookie. They won the championship the next year, but it's not like they had been in the finals with this current team. They hadn't been in the finals in a couple of years, but it was, you know, the 76 team was a very different team than the team that ended up getting there in 81. You know, the team that had won the Eastern Conference the two years before this was the Washington Bullets. Mm-hmm. So I just, I, you know, because I kept going like, oh, and then I'm guessing they had to, you know, slug it out with the Celtics in a seven game Eastern Conference finals. And you got to kind of. I was sort of fast forwarding the clock a couple of years in my head. You know what I mean? It's funny because they do beat the Celtics in the Eastern Conference Finals, but it's not a slugfest. It's four to one. So they handle them pretty easily. And that was a different Celtic team. That was before McHale got there. McHale was drafted the following year and that was Parrish was still in Golden State. 
that was actually a very interesting. They had some of the other guys, Cedric Maxwell, Tiny Archibald, some of the guys who would later be on some of the on the Celtics championship team a couple years later. But Dave Cowens was still on the team. It was the only year that Bird and Cowens played together. And despite their age differences, they made uh, very fast friends, Bird and Cowens, due to their common love of beer. And Pistol Pete was on that team, actually, too, which is just he, I think that was his only year on the Celtics. But Pete Maravich was one of the top players on that team. So that 79-80 Celtics team was a very different team. You're right. It is funny because it kind of sort of happens all at once. When you think of the early 80s, you think Boston, Philly, L.A., because L.A. was basically in the finals every year except for one from 80 to 85. And it was either Boston or Philly, every year except for one from 80 or except for two from 80 to 89. Yeah, absolutely. And then in the East, it was Boston and Philly sort of alternating back and forth going to the finals. And most years that whoever won beat the other one in the Eastern Conference finals. And the following two years, 81 and 82, they both they play two classic seven game series in the Eastern Conference finals. Before that, going into this season where everything's going to change so quickly, the best teams in the league were the Bullets and Seattle. So, it, and and two teams that really didn't contend after that. I think this Philly actually now Philly 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 plays the Bullets in the first round in 1980 and sweeps them two to nothing. So, so should we sort of set the stage about the team? Kind of, I'm sure we'll spend a lot of time on the playoffs, but so. For the most part, they have the same four starters for pretty much four, four guys pretty much start every game for them. You have Dr. J, Caldwell Jones, Maurice Cheeks, and Daryl Dawkins, two guys who are 29 years old, two guys who are 23 years old, and Cheeks and Dawkins, and then sort of a hodgepodge of starting at that fifth spot. Lionel Hollins starts 26 games. Doug Collins starts 17. Henry Bibby starts a few games. Clint Richardson starts a few games. But, you know, obviously Dr. J is far and away the guy. He averages just under 27 points a game. The next leading scorer is Daryl Dawkins at 14 points a game. Dr. J clearly, you know, he's 29 years old. He's in his fourth year in the NBA. He's very much, he's not the Dr. J people remember on the Nets, but he's not. It's funny because three years later, he's still he's, when he gets that title, he seems like an old man at that point, even though he's, what, 32 at the time, 33 at the time. But here he's still more like the guy of the late 70s than he is the guy from a few years later. Yeah, the following year was when he won his, I believe, 81 was when he won his only ever MVP award in the NBA. Let me verify that. Yeah, 80-81, he was the MVP, which was the only one he won in. The NBA Cheeks, who's ends up being their point guard for 10 years. I remember when Cheeks was the point guard. He was with them all the way until the 89-90 season. Doug Collins, who is well known later as a, a coach of the Bulls in the early Jordan years. Lionel Hollins, who I believe is might even still be a coach in the NBA today, isn't he? I believe so. Yeah, there's a lot of guys who went on to be coaches here. I see uh Al Skinner was a deep bench guy who uh, was the Boston College coach for a long time. Jim Spinarkle, later the broadcaster, is on this team. Henry Bibby, longtime USC coach, father and father of Mike Bibby. Mike Bibby, 
Doug Collins was obviously a coach for a long time. Mo Cheeks was an NBA coach for a long time. Hollins is an assistant with the Lakers right now. Before that, he was in Brooklyn for a couple of years, and then he's coached Memphis. He coached Vancouver for a season. So he's not what I would call a successful coach, but he's been a coach, either pro or assistant in the NBA for at least, um, you know, for, for many, many years. Speaking of coaches, did you see, so the head coach is Cunningham. Did you see who the uh, lead assistant was on this team? I was just about to bring that up. Chuck Daly is one of the assistants on this team. He had become a, I believe this would have been his second year as an assistant. He'd been with the Sixers starting the year before. Prior to that, he was with Penn. He actually, he was gone, but in 79, Penn gets to the, if we really wanted to, to widen this out a little to college, <laughs> Penn gets to the final four in 1979. But yeah, Daly is there for just a couple of years through 80, part of 81, 82 as an assistant, and then gets the head job in Cleveland for about half a year before moving on to bigger and better things with the Nets uh, with a quick stop off in Detroit before that. He might have that a little bit backwards, I think. Oh, he was with the Nets before, after Detroit. He was Detroit, and then he went to the Nets. Yeah, but it wasn't a quick stop off. He won championships. He's known as a Nets coach. He's certainly not. Oh, well, all right. It's fun. Whole episode on the Chuck Daly Pistons. We talked a lot about the Chuck Daly <laughs> already. <laughs> it's a fair point. You know, it's funny because I, I was watching, like I said, I was watching this 80 championship game. And one of the things that's funny when you watch that game is it's funny to see Riley as an assistant because Riley had just become an assistant coach with the Lakers halfway through that year. We talked when we did a little bit, when we did the LaSalle episode, we talked a little bit about Paul Westhead who became the coach when Jack McKinney fell off his bike. And then Riley, who'd been working as a broadcaster became the assistant coach when Westhead moved up to become the head coach. And so it's funny to see Pat Riley this was before the days he was slicking back his hair. He had sort of like a very late 70s kind of bushy haircut, and he's got glasses, and he does not look anything like the GQ model Pat Riley you'd come to know even a couple years later. And so I'm watching the game, and you see Riley, and then towards the very end of the game, the camera flips to Billy Cunningham, and he's talking to somebody, and I'm like, is that Chuck Daly that he's talking to? And it's about those two guys matched up a bunch of times in fine or a couple of times in finals down the road. Yeah, and that's what's so crazy about it is you got probably the two most prominent coaches of the 1980s, both as assistants in the very first finals of the 1980s. So sort of a harbinger of things to come, I would say. The only other thing I wanted to mention is that one of the other guys they have on the team is Daryl Dawkins, who's just considered one of the great characters in basketball history. Looking at his basketball reference page his nicknames include chocolate thunder double d doc dr dunk sir slam zandokin the mad dunker and dunk you very much so he's a guy you know there's a lot of guys and we've talked about some of them in every sport who were really really good players and they're just not well known to history for one reason or another dawkins is the opposite he never won a championship never made an all-star team never led the league in any sort of meaningful category, but he is just and he, he's, he's since passed away. But I think it's because early on in his career, he broke a bunch of rims. There's a famous clip of him. I think it was when he was on the nets and he dunked in the backboard. He didn't just break rims. He, he shattered backboards. So he's probably best known for that, but 
it's just so funny because when I first sort of got into NBA history, I'm like, oh, Daryl Dawkins, that's like one of the all time great. He's not. He was just kind of he was a solid NBA player, big, tall, long arms, probably a lot of fun to watch in person. But when you talk about actually sort of being a top player, Dawkins really just wasn't. And that's another thing that I think is worth noting here is that Maurice Cheeks is a Hall of Famer, but he's a borderline Hall of Famer, I would say. Irving is kind of alone when it comes to big time stars on this team. The thing I would say about Dawkins, he he had a hype machine before everybody had a hype machine and that helped. Yeah. So they finish 59 and 23, which is good for the third best record in basketball behind the Lakers and the Celtics. The only issue was this, you know, we're in an era where I believe six teams from each conference make the playoffs and they automatically give buys to the teams that win the division. So in the East, the Sixers at 59 and 23 do not get a buy while the Hawks at 50 and 32 do get a buy because they won their division. So the Sixers have to play the Bullets, who we talked about, the Bullets who won the Eastern Conference the last two years, won a title. They won in 78, right? I can never remember which order those ones were. They won in 78, and then the Sonics got their, reve- Sonics got their revenge in 79. It's also weird when you look at the NBA, the um, Eastern Conference standings from this era, because the... You know, you the the Atlantic Division is the teams you'd expect: Celtics, Sixers, Bullets, Knicks, Nets. The Central Division is the Hawks, the Pacers, the Cavaliers, the Pistons, the Rockets, and the Spurs. Yep. And by the next year, the Rockets were in the West because they won the West the next year. It's a good point. I didn't even thought of that, but that's a really good point. And and then the Bulls and the Bucks are in the Western Conference, along with the Kansas City Kings. So you know, things are just a little bit. A little bit all over the place. So they, they play it. It's a two or best two out of three series against the Bullets. They beat the Bullets in that opening round two to nothing. So then they go play the Hawks in the semifinals. That's a five game series. And then the Eastern Conference finals against the Celtics again with rookie Larry Bird. The Sixers win that series in five games now. The first three games are all decided pretty closely. The Sixers win game one by just three. They lose game two by six. They win game three by just two. And then games four and five, they win, you know, by 10 or 12 each time. So the first few games, if they had gone slightly in the other direction, you could see being a totally different series. But the Sixers do win two of those three close games and then win the last two. And I think it's also worth noting that Doug Collins, who's one of their best players off the bench, is hurt. He misses the entire postseason he's out with an injury he had been he hadn't been a starter but he'd been one of the top top guys and he actually misses most of the season he only plays in 36 games and so one of their better players misses a good chunk of the season Mm -hmm. he'd been an all-star the previous four seasons Collins and after he gets injured in 79 80 he only plays 12 more games in his career so we should also since you mentioned invoked and talked about all-stars Dr. J was a first team all NBA player this season and Bobby Jones was an all defensive team player. So that's mm-hmm. you know, the, the bigger honors. Um, nobody was an MVP or a defensive player of the year or anything like that. But the two of them were, you know, top honors. And then I think Billy Cunningham was the coach of the year. Do I have that right? You know, I don't, I don't have that in front of me. Let me, uh, let me take a look here. Um, ba, 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 ba. 
no, he was not. I don't know who it was, but he was not the coach of the year. He he never won coach of the year. He won NBA coach of the Fitch, month one year. Fitch, Fitch was the coach of the year. Okay. Fitch with Boston. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So I guess we should talk about the finals now, right? Unless you had anything else to get to before that. Nope. As again, we alluded to already, and I'm sure most people who are listening to this are aware, they get to the finals. Their opponent is the Los Angeles Lakers, which again, we got to set sort of expectations here. Yes, it's the Lakers and it's the what becomes the Showtime Lakers. And the Lakers never have a long dip, but they hadn't been to a final since 1973. I think the year before Kareem got there was the only time they had missed the playoffs since they'd been in Los Angeles, I believe in like 76 or whatever it would have been before, right before Kareem got there, 75, the one year. So, you know, they were a solid team, but like we mentioned, you had in the late seventies in the NBA, you had some different teams making the finals. You had in 75, it was from the West. 75 was golden state. 76 was the Suns. 77 is Portland. 78 and 79 are Seattle. So it's a different world. And this is Kareem's team. Yes. This is very Kareem is the MVP. This is his last MVP season. I don't know. I think he wins five in his career. I don't know. Maybe not. Would probably wouldn't be that many. How many does Kareem win? Uh, how many MVPs for Kareem? Oh, I was six. I I undershot it. God. So yeah, he. Even though the team was not as good, Kareem was stacking up MVPs in the eighties. Magic's a rookie. Their second best player is probably Jamal Wilkes. They have some of the guys, Mark, Michael Cooper, who'd be on the team the whole time. But this is and actually even this is during the time when Magic is not even definitely the number one point guard. He's kind of going back and forth with Norm Nixon as who should be the, the main point guard for the team. So this is not, they still have Spencer Haywood who very famously gets kicked off the team for falling asleep during a practice in the middle of the NBA finals. As you can imagine, drugs played a role. So there was definitely, this was not the, you know, Riley's not the coach yet. Westhead's not even the coach yet at the beginning of the year. This is not, the Lakers that you think of, this is not the Showtime Lakers quite yet, but like Andrew said, they're on their way. And especially with magic joining the team, the parts are there. Exactly. So, you know, if you just do a quick look at the line scores for each of these leading points and rebounds, it's Kareem in both in games one through three, he's got leading rebounds in game four and magic has the points game five. Kareem leads in points and then, you know, we'll, we'll talk about it. So it, it still is a series that's dominated by Kareem. Lakers have home court. They win game one, 109-102. Kareem has 33 and 14. Game two at the Forum, the Sixers steal one, 107 to 104. So the Lakers, or the Sixers get, you know, the one game you would hope for in Los Angeles, heading back to Philadelphia with the series tied at one for the first NBA final. Well, I guess 77 I was going to say the first NBA finals games in Philadelphia in, and then I realized three years. So not my point is withdrawn. <laughs> so then game three, the Lakers get their win back. They win one eleven to one Oh one Kareem with 33 and 14. One real quick before you go to go back to the LA or back to the Philly games. Game two is a classic, almost comeback by the Lakers. The Sixers, Sixers are up by as much as 20 in the fourth quarter. But the Lakers make it a one-point game before Bobby Jones hits a hits a jump shot to make it a 107-104 game. This was the first year of the three-point line, 
but if you watch some of those games, it's so little of a factor that even being up three with seven seconds left, it had to feel like the game was just over. Yeah, it was almost like a, I don't want to say a trick shot, but it was like nobody had come up practicing that. I mean, you know, it had been a thing in the ABA, but it wasn't, and especially you think about a coach, most of the coaches at the time were guys who came up learning their basketball in the 40s and 50s and early 60s. Well, 40s was a little early, you know, in the in the 50s and 60s. And like, they weren't going to be like, yes, this brand new thing that I consider a gimmick, we're going to build our team around. And it's also nobody could shoot them that well. Like, And I also am seeing here in game three, Dr. J in game three hits the only three pointer of the series and the first in NBA finals history in game three at the spectrum. So game three Lakers get up early. They get up 15 in the first quarter. They're up 14 at the half. Not a whole lot of uh, drama in that particular game. Game four, a bit of a different story. Sixers kind of facing a must win game down two to one. This was the uh, game where Dr. J had one of his famous moves, the baseline move in uh, when you see highlights of Dr. J and it's oftentimes transposed with highlights of Jordan doing similar things 10 years later, eight years later, whatever. This was one of the the famous Dr. J moves under the basket. Does he, does he dunk it or does he just lay it up? I think that's like the behind layup kind of thing. Yeah, he, he jumps from the, he comes up the sideline and he cradles it and he goes under the hoop to the other side and he kind of lays it up. It's, Every year you see it on the NBA Finals without fail. And this was, um, you mentioned Daryl Dawkins. This was probably the high point of his career. He leads the team with 26 points, uh, just ahead of Dr. J with 23 to get the win. They tied the series at two, heading back to Los Angeles. Game five, and this is sort of the, the key. Lakers are up. It's close late in the game, late in the third quarter in game five. Kareem, who, like we mentioned, has been dominating this series, steps on the foot of Lionel Hollins as he's running up court after a basket, twists his ankle. He'd scored 26 points at this point, goes to the locker room. Magic, again, who is a rookie, fills in the gaps, scores six points right away, gives LA, extends the LA lead. Kareem limps back onto the floor, scores 11 more points and two big blocks. But the Sixers come back, tie it with 43 seconds remaining. So you have this real war. You know, Kareem gets hurt. He's dominating, comes back, continues to play really well. Dr. J is answering them, putting the Sixers on his back. And then Kareem on the bad ankle with a emphatic dunk. Emphatic is according to Wikipedia, but I'll take their word for it. Scores, draws the foul, 33 seconds left, hits the free throw, and the Lakers end up holding on to win, moving to them to within one game of a championship for the first time since 1972. Before we talk about game six, I'm just looking the times of these games. One game is at one o'clock in the afternoon. So I'm looking here. First game is on the West Coast, 1230 Pacific. So that would be 330 East Coast. Second game is 830 Pacific. So that will be 1130 at night on the East Coast. Third game, game three is 330 on the East Coast. That'd be 1230. That must have been a a week weekend. Played Saturday, Sunday, right? Because they're both after games three and four were both matinees. Yes. Game four, one o'clock Eastern. So that would have been 10 a.m. on the East Coast, 10 a.m. on a Sunday morning. Then they go back out for game five. 
to LA and it's 8.30 Pacific, which would have been 11.30 on the East Coast. And then game six was 9 p.m. on the East Coast. And really just scheduled them according to the city they were in without thinking about national TV markets at the time. Yeah, I'm just looking here. I guess the the 3.30 East Coast game probably could be considered reasonable for both places. And then the game that was 8.30 Pacific, or I'm sorry, no, the game that was 9 o'clock Eastern would have been 6 o'clock West Coast. So now, again, a lot of this wasn't seen live anyway. But think about this. If you were on the East Coast, you would have had a game that probably ended at 2 o'clock in the morning. And if you were on the West Coast, you had a game that started at 10 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday. Yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, and, and think about how unheard of that would be three or four years later, even even just a couple years later. So they go into this game six. The famous story is that Kareem can't make it, even though he'd come back for game six. He can't really make it because of the the injury and the swelling. And, and I think it's probably unclear whether he'll be available for game seven. Because, again, you got to remember, game six entails flying all the way across the country, flying what I'm sure is commercial for a guy who's seven feet tall with a bad ankle to go all the way to Philadelphia and then possibly then have to fly all the way back to Los Angeles for a game seven. Yeah. So they say that magic plays center. That's sort of the mythology. He does jump at the center and he does play in the front court a little bit, but I think the whole magic played center thing has kind of been overblown a little bit. He, he still played more point guard in that game than he played anything else, but nonetheless, what he does do is have honestly what might have been Magic's best game as a pro, even in, in his rookie year. He has a double double with 42 points and 15 rebounds and seven assists. So he comes relatively close to a triple double. The other sort of the unsung hero of that game is Wilkes, who scores 37 points and 10 rebounds, who's got 10 rebounds, or I'm sorry, he's got a double double, even in his own right. They double Dr. J for a lot of this game. He's still the leading scorer with 27 points, but it's not really his best game, Julius Irving. It, it's, he struggles a little bit, especially because they're double teaming him. Eventually, late in the game, they actually move him into the backcourt so that they can have a little bit more size up front, and that seems to work. The Lakers lead most of this game. It's tied at halftime. But then they pull out to a big lead in the third quarter. They're up by like, you know, they're up by double digits for most of the third into the fourth quarter. And then the Sixers kind of come roaring back at one point. It's kind of like the Lakers had earlier in the season. I think they make it. I don't think they ever take the lead or tie it. But Philly makes it a one or two point game at some point before the Lakers pull away and win the game 123 to 107. And then that's always been cited as not only the first big game for the Showtime Lakers for magic, but also the harbinger of this NBA of the eighties that would be dominated by, well, by bird, but then even more so by magic in these Lakers. So Philly, it's another disappointing loss. They lose in six games, probably not as disappointing as 77 because they were the clear favorites going into 77. Whereas in 80, you still had Kareem who'd been the MVP of the league deeper team like we said Julius is kind of the one really really good player on the team but nonetheless you kind of have to figure 
going back to Philly with the MVP of the league staying in California, you got to figure they had felt at least they had at least a pretty good chance of making it back to a game seven, if nothing else. Yeah. And also they win game two. So they're going back home with a chance to, to, you know, do some damage and maybe get up three to one and they lose the two games in a row. We're obviously talking about this specific year, but, you know, just to play it forward for them, they have one more finals heartbreak 81. I'm assuming it was the, they, they were the, who lost to the Celtics in the Eastern conference finals. They lost game seven to the Celtics at the Boston garden in 81. It's one of the classic games. It's 91, 90 Celtics. My in-laws, my wife's parents, had season tickets to the Celtics in those days. And they, they've said in the past that it's still the best, most fun game they've ever been to was this 81, 91 to 90 win by Boston over Philly in the 81 playoffs. And then the following year, they go to seven again and they beat the Celtics in game seven. I think that game was, and that game was at the Boston garden. And that was a big upset. The Celtics had actually they had won game four, game one of that series by by forty points. They were widely they had won another game by twenty nine. They were widely considered the favorites, and there's even a clip of going into that eighty two game seven of I think it's Brent Musburger saying I've never done a big game where everybody just assumed that only one team had any chance of winning, but Philly does it. They they get revenge on Boston. They they win it in seven. But then they lose to the Lakers in six, and it's widely considered that they need to go out and improve on their team. And that's when they make maybe the biggest sort of, maybe in NBA history, the, I guess maybe you want to say the Lakers with Wilt, but they bring in the reigning MVP of the league. That's, that may be the only time that the reigning MVP has ever left to go to a different team. They bring in Moses Malone. He had won the MVP the previous year with Houston. He'd been in the finals two years previous with Houston and lost to the Celtics. And he comes in. They have one of the all-time great single seasons in NBA history. They're 65 and 17. They dominate the playoffs. They only lose one game in three, four, you know, three best of seven series. They lose to the Bucks one game and it's, they sweep the Lakers. It's probably the Lakers' poorest performance in a finals. 89 when they lose to Detroit, but also in 89, Magic, Worthy, and like Byron Scott and somebody else, they're all hurt. So I don't think anybody was expecting Philly to just roll over the Lakers. And it's kind of been lost to history a little bit because it was the only it was the only time that LA until that Detroit series at the very end of the 80s, it was the only time that the Lakers had lost to anybody beyond Boston. And in fact, I think that was the only series from 80 to 88. That was the only championship not won by either Boston or the Lakers. So I think that's kind of, and plus the fact that that Sixer team a couple a year later, they draft Barkley and they're pretty good for a couple of years, but then Moses is hurt and then he leaves and Dr. J gets old. And so they never make it back to the finals after that year. They, they contend a little bit, but not too much. And I think that one season outside of Philadelphia has kind of been lost to history a little bit, just how dominant they were. And something else that's also important to point out, this was the last, 83 was the last championship any Philly team won, any pro team won until the 08 Phillies. 
Yep. I went to college in 04 to 08 to May of 08. So before the Phillies at LaSalle and they would talk they 21 years and counting, 22 years and counting, whatever it was. And that was at a time when they were all very high on the possibility that the Eagles might win one early when I was in college. And then, you know, the Flyers were always at least pretty good when I was there. So there was always kind of hope. But for 25 years, they were sort of the symbol of the last Eagle or the, excuse me, the last Philadelphia team that had won a championship. So do you want to move on? Talk a little bit about the Flyers. Yeah, let's stay in the same building. Um, and we'll talk about the stadiums in a, in, in a little bit. The 80 Flyers, and it's I like this because every one of these four teams comes from sort of a different angle at this and also at this specific year. The Sixers were the team that hadn't won but had been good and didn't win in 80 and but ultimately got their title a couple of years later. The Flyers were the team that had won. They won two titles in the early in the mid-70s, the very famous or infamous, depending on. Basically, if you live in the Delaware Valley or if you live in the rest of the country, uh, is the Broad your, Street Bullies is your delineation for the Broad Street Bullies and how they're regarded. They had won in 74 and 75, the Broad Street Bullies, and had been a contender since then playing a very, I don't even want to say physical style of hockey, a very um, fisticuff style of hockey. There's the famous story from 76 of the Red Army team, you know, the basically the, the miracle on ice Soviet team, the Olympic, you know, Soviet hockey team, they would go on barnstorming tours. And there's a little bit of an exaggeration in a lot of popular culture that like, oh, they would always just destroy every NHL team they played. Sometimes they would beat NHL all-star teams. Sometimes they would lose to NHL all-star teams. They would play series against the best teams in the NHL. And sometimes they'd win them. Sometimes they'd lose them. Now, again, in the context of playing college hockey players it's you know it's not a fair fight but like people make it seem like oh they were the 20 20 best players in the world and that's being a little simplistic but there's a story from 76 when they played uh probably at the spectrum where teakin and the coach who was the you know the coach for the miracle on ice team too had just had enough and pulled his guys off the off the floor at one point off the ice but um I guess he was like in the in the bowels of the arena and, you know, getting into an argument with somebody. And he said in like, you know, heavy Russian accented, he's like, oh, such tripping. Like, <laughs> bad about like the tactics. He's like, oh, my God, such tripping. Like, um, But, um, you know, they were still a very, very good team. We're in an era with the NHL where, you know, for a very long time, the Canadians were... Th- the be all and end all of hockey. They won the title more years than they didn't win the title. And the 79, 80 season is famous for the flyers in they had again, no, that's right. They had won the cup in 74 and 75. They'd lost the finals in 76. The famous thing about this flyers team, if you're going to know one thing about them is the streak. They won their first game of the season. They lost their second game of the season. And then they played 35 games where they either won or tied. They had one loss after 37 games, and they had a 35-game streak of either winning or tying. Now, this is an era where there's no overtime. There's not even a five-minute overtime and then a 
than a tie. If the game is tied at the end of three periods, it's a tie. But that level of dominance is pretty unrivaled. I mean, it's it's pretty in- incredible. So who are sort of the some of the big guys on this team? I'm looking at the roster and admittedly not being a Philadelphia Flyers expert. The, the one name that pops out to me right off the bat is Bobby Clark. He's somebody that I've really heard of. Yeah, and he was the best player on those Broad Street Bullies teams in the 70s. And he's still, I guess I thought he was a little bit older than he was. And he was still, he was only 30 years old. I guess this was the year he had been named a assistant coach or something like that. So he had to relinquish because of league rules, even though he was still a player, he had to relinquish his captaincy. So he wasn't the captain. It was given to uh, Mel Bridgman, became the captain. It was the first year for a guy named Pat Quinn, as their head coach. So they had, you know, a little bit of, of head co- coaching turnover, nobody over 30, no position players over 30, but you had still guys like Bill Barber, Bobby Clark. The best player on the team was a guy named Ken Linsman, who led the league in points or led the, excuse me, led the team in points. He was only 21 years old. So he had not been a part of the broad street bullies teams from a few years before this. I'm going to guess he was Maybe not a, I'm looking it up now. He was maybe not a rookie, but he was certainly, you know, in one of his first couple of years. I'm going to see what his exact first season was. He had been, this was his second year in the NHL. He'd played 30 games with the Flyers the year before in 78, 79. So he was, you know, he was taking over sort of the role as the lead dog. But, you know, Barber is a guy who was very famous as part of the, Broad Street Bullies teams, Barber and Clark were the two all-stars. And the, the other thing I would note, and this is a name that I know, they were without Bernie Parent, who had been their great goalie Hall of Famer of the 70s. He, the previous season, late in the season, had a season-ending eye injury actually against the Rangers. And so this was the first year without him. He was another one of those leaders of those mid-70s teams. And I had it written down, apparently, and I was just overlooking it. After they were 26-1-10. and 10. So that 35 game winning streak, they went 20 or unbeaten streak. They went 25 and 10. So it's not even like, oh, they tie like 25 and or, excuse me. They went 25. Oh, and, oh, and 10. 10. Yeah. But I mean, 25 and 10 is insane, let alone 25. Oh, and 10. It's not like, oh, they went. Sometimes I hear that with soccer where it's like, oh, they're unbeaten in their last nine games and six of them are ties. And it's like, all right. <laughs> um, yeah. The goaltending was split between two guys. Pete Peters, who was only 22, became the lead goalie at the end of the year and started in the was firmly entrenched as the starter come playoff time and also an an interesting sort of article i saw pat quinn was the like i said he was a a, a new head coach and i'm looking at a philadelphia inquirer piece on they did a thing on the best teams that never won in philadelphia very similar to the bracket we did on my show a few years ago although they did like a six-part series instead of a 64 team tournament like we did of the best teams in New York to never won. But some articles here thinking, you know, it talks about Pat Quinn had replaced the team's traditional practice on Mondays, replaced the team's traditional practices with mandatory bonding sessions. Players could compete in anything but hockey. The Flyers coach began referring to Mondays as fun days. Remember, this is the late mid 70s or late 70s, early 80s in professional hockey. Yeah. And on a team that had a, reputation as being a bunch of tough gruff guys you had said to me oh monday practices were called fun days i would have thought it was like oh he must have just like 
run them or made them do like that drill you see sometimes when like people are in basic training where they get hit with like the American gladiator sticks. That's literally what I would have thought they were talking about. So weekly softball, volleyball, and touch football games, followed by beers at Rexy's or the Philadium Philadium. Help fuse the 7980 Flyers, a loosely connected roster of veteran minor leaguers, talented prospects, and leftover stars from the Stanley Cup champions. We were together all the time, said Bob Kelly. They drank together. They hung out together. They fought together. They won together. Shot to the top of the NHL and stayed there. Defeated only 12 times in 80 regular season games. So a different kind of thing that I felt like gave some color to it. So the NHL is a little weird in this because the NHL is in their era of Divisions that made no sense. Really trying to figure things out because, okay, from the whatever, the 30s to 1967, there's six teams. Then in 1967, they add six more teams, of which the Flyers were one of them. So for four or five years, they just go, oh, the what they call the original six. And anybody who's listened to this has heard my rant about that before, which is really Keith Olbermann's rant. The Eastern Conference was the original six teams. The Western Conference was the other six teams. So like... The Blues, the first like three years of the 12-team NHL era, the Blues won the Western Conference and then just got swept by Montreal or whoever it was. You know, so then there was 12. But then in the early 70s, they had some more teams and they just they're really grasping with trying to figure out how they're gonna do this. So this particular year, the playoffs were just seated. The top eight teams in each conference made the playoffs, but then they just seeded the 16 teams based on points, irrespective of conference. So the Flyers are the number one seed. In the opening round, they played the number 16 seed, which is the Edmonton Oilers, who, if you look at some of the names on the team, you know they're a team that's very much young and in their ascendancy. And as we'll talk in a few minutes... Is this Gretzky's rookie year? It's one of his first years. It might be his rookie year. Edmonton, this 1980 season, which we'll get to in the finals, is the birth of a dynasty. Five years later, this Edmonton team ends that dynasty and starts their own dynasty. So there's still a few years off the mark, but just kind of an interesting thing where you still have some guys who, you know, were on the Broad Street Bullies. You have Bobby Clark and Wayne Gretzky playing each other in a playoff series. It's just kind of interesting to think about. We should also note 16 teams make the playoffs and there's only 21 teams in the league, period. And the so, NBA was like that at the time, too. Where, well, no, the NBA wasn't, though, because remember, we were just talking. They had first round buys. Yeah. A couple of years later, they 16 teams made the playoffs when there was 23 teams in the NBA. I know that for a fact. Yeah. So this is now, 16 and 21 lottery year. There's the seven teams that didn't make the playoffs. Mm-hmm. Um, so so they they sweep Edmonton. They play the Rangers in the second round, and they're reseeding after every round. So the Flyers are always going to play the lowest seed remaining. They play the Rangers in the second round. Uh, They beat the Rangers in five, and then they beat Minnesota, the Minnesota North Stars, who had originally been the sixth seed. They beat the Minnesota North Stars in five games in the semifinals. You can't really call it the conference finals because that wasn't wasn't how they were doing it, which brings them to a Stanley Cup matchup with the New York Islanders. The Islanders were a team that had, in the last few years had been good, but had a reputation for, for choking in the playoffs in 1979. They were the, had the best record in hockey, 
which the Flyers did in 80, and they lost in the Eastern or whatever. They lost in the semifinals, and they were starting to get that reputation as a team that can't get it done when it matters. So you have a series of, which again, kind of looks to the modern eye. I remember when I was first getting into the Islanders and looking at, oh, um, who did they beat in these finals? And I'm like, how did they beat the Flyers in the finals? And then I remember looking and going like, or in my head, I was like, oh, I know there used to be like the Campbell and the Wales and all the different conferences, but the Islanders and Flyers were always in the same division <laughs> or, the, or they were, you know, pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Certainly by 1980, it's just the way they did the playoffs that year. So was it the only year they did it like this? I don't know. Okay. I know they, they didn't play again because a few years ago, and I, I don't understand why if they have the rights and the footage to this, they don't do it more, but they played all four Islanders clinchers in a row. Like I, the 81 I knew about, but then like the, the one is against Vancouver where Vancouver's wearing like those yellow sweaters and, and all that. And then one's against, I think Minnesota. And then the last one's against Edmonton. So you go into the 80 Stanley cup finals, Islanders flyers, flyers have home ice again, as should be obvious with the best record in hockey. And like you said, you got two teams in the same division playing for the championship. Flyers get game one. Excuse me, the Islanders get game one, four to three in overtime. The game winning goal is scored by Dennis Potvin four minutes into overtime. So the uh, Islanders get the first win at the Spectrum. The second game, the Flyers beat the crap out of the Islanders at the Spectrum eight to three. They score a bunch of goals in a row here. It looks like this kind of formatted weird, but the Flyers win eight to three in the second game. Then the Islanders win big in game three, six to two at the, at the Coliseum for a Stanley cup finals game at the Coliseum Islanders win six to two. They win five to two in game four to go up three to one, get themselves to within a game of a championship. Then in game five, the Flyers win six to three. So it's a weird series where game one is an overtime game. And then the next four games are split, but the flyers win by five. The Islanders win by four, the Islanders win by three, and then the flyers win by three. So no close games or even two goal games after game one until we get to game six. And I want to pull up the article on game six. And this is May the 24th at Nassau Coliseum and the game goes into overtime and the Islands an afternoon game. It's the last game for 10 years. That's on national television, national broadcast television in the United States. This is the last game, the 1980 Stanley cup finals. And I'm just pulling this up. The Islanders win five to four. This is the Philadelphia Inquirer aspect of this article. It says, uh, with a controversial 5-4 to four overtime loss, a defeat made manning by three questionable New York goals, won the result of a legendary lapse by linesman, linesman meaning official, Leon Stickle, Bill Barber. If we're going to lose, we didn't want it to be that way. You know, a lot of quotes, the Islanders were really good, but I don't think we'd have lost a game seven at home, said Kelly. What can you do? They didn't have replay yet. And <laughs> this is a good quote. But what can you do? They didn't have replay yet, and Leon Stickle sucked. So they get to the finals. They have a you know a hard-fought series where the first and last games of the series, they lose in overtime. The middle four were kind of rotating blowouts. At the time, nobody realizes that the Islanders are about to go on a run of four straight Stanley Cup, 80, 81, 82, 83. 
And then in 84, we'll get to the finals against those Edmonton Oilers, who I mentioned before, the Oilers will beat them and start their own dynasty. And actually the following year, the Flyers lose the Stanley Cup final to that Edmonton team in 85. Totally different Flyer team, different coach by that point. Their coach is actually Mike Keenan, who later is the Ranger coach for their Stanley Cup. So they do make it back five years later and lose to another dynasty in the Oilers. Yeah. So, you know, they remain a competitive team. They've The Flyers have never really had long lapses. If you look at their, you know, so they lose the Stanley Cup finals in 85, 86, they lose in the divisional semis, 87, they lose in the conference finals, late seven, you know, late eighties, they actually have a stretch of like five straight years where they don't make the playoffs. Then they're right back in the conference finals or the conference semifinals, pretty much the rest of the nineties until the lockout for the most part, even to this day, they're, they're a contender. They got to the Stanley cup in 2010, I want to say, and lost to the Blackhawks. That 80 team was kind of the last hurrah for the broad most. It wasn't quite the broad street bullies team, but it was kind of the last hurrah for a bunch of the guys that were on that team by 85. It was really a totally different team. But again, you don't know that at the time you could think, Oh, this was their, their last shot at it. But nobody, again, nobody knew what the Islanders were going to do. Nobody knew what the, the, Oilers were going to do. So it was not out of the realm of possibility. They're like, oh yeah, they they could be back. You know, I don't think skating off the ice that day, they were thinking, oh, we just blew our last chance at it is what I'm trying to say. Especially when they'd won so many games, so many handily, so handily. It's not like they got outclassed in the finals. Mm-hmm. And they were the best team in hockey that year and they had a 35 game on beating, beating streak. Alright, so why don't we move on to the one Go ahead, I'm sorry. Before we do that, I just wanted to point out, um, so this is, you know, I talk about the building. These are This is all happening in two buildings. The teams we've talked about so far, this is all happening in one building, and it's all just as it is today. They're right next to each other. So if you think about it, in this span, you had the NBA Finals, the Stanley Cup Finals, the World Series, and the NFC Championship, as close as we can get to that all in the same parking lot, basically in the, in this time period. So it's all being done in either veteran stadium or the spectrum. And I just kind of, for May specifically, I was looking up sort of the dates of this. And so you had on this stretch here, and then I'll talk a few things about the rest of the month, May 10th and 11th, you had the NBA finals, then the 13th and the 15th, you had the Stanley cup finals back to the NBA finals on May 16th and then the Stanley cup finals again on May 22nd. Wow. So, you know, that seven day stretch between the 10th and the 16th, five finals games. Also in that same little stretch of time on May 17th, you had a concert featuring Rufus and Shaka Khan. May 19th, you had a concert with Nazareth and Blackfoot <laughs> at the beginning of the month. You had May 5th and 6th, you still had the Flyers finishing up with the North Stars in the semifinal round. May 7th and 9th, you had Van Halen, early Van Halen, in concert at the Spectrum two nights in a row. And on May 10th, the day of Game 1 of the NBA Finals. So Game 1 of the NBA Finals was a matinee like we talked about. So this must have been at night. The World Wrestling Federation had their monthly house show at the Philadelphia Spectrum headlined by World Wrestling Federation champion Bob Backlund. Would you like to guess who Bob Backlund's opponent was that night? 
1980. Yes. Is it somebody super obvious? Was a, a relatively new young bad guy to the territory. Was it Hulk Hogan? The Incredible Hulk Hogan. <laughs> and I watched the match, or I watched part of the match. It's on YouTube. And as Hogan's walking to the ring, first of all, he looks exactly like Thunderlips because it's probably within a year of when he was Thunderlips in Rocky Three. And also the announcers are like, Oh, you know, quite a few cheers for Hulk Hogan here in Philadelphia. It's just kind of interesting. But what I think is interesting is the fact that somebody who knew absolutely nothing about wrestling would have had a better chance of getting that trivia question right than I did because they would have just guessed Hulk Hogan. Yeah, you were you were trying to figure out like, well, one of the wild Samoans (laughs) like grandma would have been like, now, where did you find all this information? I, well, I, I was like, I'm interested to see. I looked up the dates of the finals and stuff, and I was like, let me see if I can figure out anything else that happened then. So I just searched concert spectrum and went to May of 80. Okay. And got that. And then I know where to look up all the WWF shows. And I was like, I know that back then they would have been running monthly at the spectrum. So I said, let me see. And then I looked at May 10th and I was like, I guess the same day as game one of the NBA finals, they had, and I looked up the full card and I saw the main event was Hulk Hogan against Bob Backlund. So then I looked to see if it was on YouTube and it was. So I always thought that would be a a cool thing to look at is like what it would have been like, just like a month at a specific. This is a pretty good one. That's the, that's a pretty, yeah, that's, that's pretty. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So do we want to talk? Uh, do we want to go across the street here to the vet and talk about the one the one championship? That, I wouldn't call it the one bright spot because making it there is a pretty good bright spot. But the the best chapter of this story, if you're a Philly fan, a Phil, uh, you know, a Philadelphia fan is the 1980 Phillies who win. This is the first. This is the first World Series in team history and franchise history, isn't it? First championship. Yeah. yeah, first yeah. World Series championship, exactly. Their first championship. And, and a lot of that goes in. They were the first, were they the last original 16 team to never win a championship? I believe they were. No. Well, who did the, no, because the Washington Senators became the Twins and they hadn't won. That's a good, no, the Senators had won. Well, that's a good point. Yes, they had. So well, they'd won. I believe they, I, Fighting Phils were simply a really bad baseball team. They'd made the postseason just five times, winning pennants in 1950 and 1950, 1915 and 1950. Yep, here we go. Entered the decade as one of the only original National League team, the, the only one of the original National League teams to not have won a fall classic. And then if you do the American League, the Yankees had obviously won, the Philly or the A's had obviously won. By then, the Orioles had won, the Browns, the Senators had won, the White Sox. Cleveland had won. The Red Sox, too. The Red Sox had won. And who am I missing? I thought that was Aiden. Detroit had won. Detroit, yeah. Detroit had won in the 60s. Yeah. Yeah. So and the 30s. That's original 16 team to not win a championship. Yeah. No, and that's, and it had been a while in Philly generally. I guess 67 had been the Sixers and I guess the, the Flyers had won. Yeah. But the, the Phillies. Five years. <laughs> and the Phillies were just awful in they had that one year in 64 where they blew that lead late to the Cardinals that whole that August uh, September comeback where the Cardinals made up like 12 games and I think the Phillies what did they lose like 14 games in a row at one point or something yeah it was it was very precipitous yes 
And so the, the Phillies had not been good. They had been just, you know, they'd had issues, you know, the, the racial issues with some of the players, you know, some of the first black players on the team. And they just had been, they hadn't been lovable losers. They'd just been horrible. Yeah. If, if you look at stretches in the 30s, were they like if you just go through some of their loss totals? So I, I'll do, I won't go all the way, but if you start in 19, let's say 36. I'm just going to read losses. 192, 105, 106, 103, 111, 109. Then two years of 90 and 92, back to 108. Like, these are 154-game seasons. They went 43 and 111 in 1941, and you can't blame the war. (laughs) You know, it's funny, too. They finished, real quick, in 1942... They finished 62 games out of first place. (laughs) You know, it almost makes you wonder that they were not the team that left. Well, and we could do an episode just on teams moving. We could do probably an episode on each one, but because also they didn't even own the stadium. But what what happened there was, and I've always said it's weird because they the A's were the better team, but the A's were just as bad starting in the thirties and they Connie Mack died and the family, you know what I mean? So like there was, there was, there was ownership turmoil. It's kind of amazing. They didn't lose both of them to be honest. And they probably would have gotten an expansion team sort of like the New York did in the national league. But like, it's kind of incredible. They didn't lose both of them. So they have that one whiz kids team in 50 that loses to the Yankees in four. And then in 64, they blow the pennant to St. Louis. And then they kind of, they enter the dark ages a little bit. They re-enter the dark ages, I guess is a better way to put it. They, they have, they have some, some winning seasons in the sixties, but then by the early seventies, they're back down below 500, 1972. They're really bad. They're 59 and 97. They finished 37 and a half games out of first place. Best players in this era are probably Dick Allen, who we talked about quite a bit, including with our father, because he passed away just last year. He's with the Phillies from 63 to 69. I'm sorry. Dick Allen passed away just last year. Yeah. Who else would I be talking about? We talked about him with our father who passed away just last year. No, no, no. I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. Dick Allen passed away last year. And so he was with the team throughout the 60s and then later comes back for a few years uh, in in 75 and 76, they have Steve Carlton, uh, one of the great left-handed pitchers of all time, who had been a star. He started with the Cardinals in the 60s. He was sort of second in the rotation to Bob Gibson, and he won the World Series in 67 with the Cardinals. He joins the Phillies in 72, and then most importantly in 72, they call up Mike Schmidt, who goes on to be the most beloved Philly in history, multiple-time MVP, and probably, for my money, the best third baseman of all time. So if you look at one guy, one moment, where the Phillies start to kind of turn things back around, it's 72 when they bring in Schmidt late in the year, and his rookie year, his first full year with the team is the following year in 73. And you can start to see them climb. 74, they finish in third. They finish... Under 500 still, but they're 80 and 82, so just barely under 500. 75, they finish with a winning record for the first time in about 10 years. 
86 and 76. They finished in finished in second place. By 76, they get back to the postseason. Unfortunately, they run into the Big Red Machine who buzzed through them and then did the same thing to the Yankees in the World Series. So no shame there. And then 77 and 78, they're once again back. You know, 76 and 77, they're a 100-win team two years in a row. Mm-hmm. 77 and 78, they run into the LA Dodgers two years in a row. You know, it's kind of weird. You have, it's a little different, but actually, no, it's not. I didn't even think about it. Like, they were basically exactly the same thing in the NL. They were the foils to the Dodgers those couple of years as the Royals were to the Yankees. Yeah, it's very similar. And then in 80, they both got flipped. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and then in 81, the Yankees didn't play Kansas City in 81, but the uh, Dodgers went, you know, went back and got their revenge on the Phillies again. But it's kind of, you know, I, I guess I'd never really drawn that conclusion before. But, you know, so 77 and 78, they play the Dodgers. They lose in four. But these are back when it's best three out of five. So it's three to one. 79, they backslide a little bit, um, you know, still finish over 500, but they're 14 games out of first place. They finish in fourth. And that is a good jumping off point because with about a month left in the season, Dallas Green takes over as the manager of the Phillies. They finish 19 and 11, and he is now the manager heading into the 1980 season. Yeah, the previous manager had been a guy by the name of Danny Ozark who had taken them to those playoff games. It's kind of funny. There's there's parallels with the Flyers here, except sort of in the opposite direction. The previous year, the Flyers had fired their coach halfway or, you know, at some point in the season and brought in Quinn, who was sort of more had a more looser approach. Dallas Green was the opposite. He was much more of a hard ass and he clashes with a lot of his players, uh, most notably Greg Luzinski for being sort of a pain as a coach, very hard coach. In the documentary that I watched, they were these Phillies teams were described as not a happy bunch of people. So, and I think a lot of that was Green's managerial approach, which is something that we saw years years later when he, you know, was coaching the well, he managed with the Yankees and the Mets in the late eighties, uh, early nineties time period. The other t- big thing that they do in seventy nine is they bring in Pete Rose, Rose who had been an MVP and a World Champion and everything else with the Cincinnati Reds, and in the nineteen seventy nine season they. I believe it's a free agent signing. Let me look and see. I don't remember off the top of my head whether it was a free agent signing or a trade. No, it was a free agent signing. December of 78, they signed Rose to, I guess it would have been a five-year contract. He is probably in his mid-30s by this point. How old is Pete Rose? He played for so long that it's sometimes hard to remember. Going into the 79 season, Pete Rose is 38 years old, and the... Phillies bring him in to compliment Mike Schmidt I to be their starting first baseman. And that is sort of the signing that kind of puts the Phillies over the hump. And an interesting thing here I see. So Green gets a job for the 1980 season. Going into the year, and this is a quote from Larry Boa, one of the key players on this team and later the Phillies manager, said, there's probably more pressure on our ball club than ever, said Boa in spring training, because we've been told by the front office, if we don't do it this year, they're going to break up the ball club. So they basically knew. I always remember the story, and part of this, I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, but the 55 Dodgers were in spring training 
Robinson said to somebody, I forget who he supposedly said it to, but basically said like, this is probably it for us. You know, I'm 30, whatever. We're all 30 something. If we don't do it this year, we're probably not going to do it. A, who knows if that was actually said or if that's hindsight. This one's a little more clear because it was reported contemporaneously. And B, Robinson was probably was kind of wrong because the next year they did win the pennant. So it's not like it was out of the realm that they would have done it the next year too. But, um, you know, it's just interesting that they kind of knew. You tend to think, oh, players might not think about this stuff. But like the fact that the front office actually told them that kind of makes it difficult. Like, Well, and the ironic thing is, is given the fact that they do win, they end up keeping that whole group around. And three years later in 83, and I think we talked about this in the In Memoriam episode when we talked about Joe Morgan, they bring in a bunch of even older guys. They keep Schmitz obviously still around and Rose is still around and some of these other guys. And then they also bring in two other ex-Reds, the 41-year-old Tony Perez and the 40, the 39-year-old Joe Morgan. They only have they don't have any player in their starting lineup in 83. Eight out of not seven out of eight guys on their team in their starting lineup in 83 are over 30 years of age. So they win in 80. I thought you were going to say seven of their eight guys had been on the Reds. No, no. Well, a a lot had. Was there some sort of overlap? Was like somebody in the Phillies front office like previously with the Reds or was it just like the Reds were really good? So we're going to take all their guys. I don't know the answer to that. I don't think it was that. I think it was probably more that they had good luck with Rose and Rose was probably like, hey, why don't you bring some of these other guys in? So and hey, it almost worked. They almost won another World Series in 83. They lost to Baltimore. So the 80 team, just a couple of guys that are worth mentioning. In addition to Rose and Schmidt, the shortstop is Larry Boa, who later goes on to manage the Phillies for a time in the early 2000s. He was the manager when I first got there because it was he it went from him, I believe, to to manual when I was there. And he kind of like green, I think, was always sort of known for having a little bit of an abrasive personality. Yeah, remember he because then for a while, I think in the late Tory era, he was their third base coach, bench coach uh, for the Yankees. Yeah, a year or two he was with the Yankees. Yeah, and he kind of fit in in that role as a counterweight to Tory, but still under Tory. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Yes, because their personalities were so different. Catcher on this team was Bob Boone, the father of Aaron and Brett Boone, and the son of uh, Ray Boone, who had been a major leaguer in the fifties. So the second of three generation of Boones in Major League Baseball. Uh, we talked about Schmidt. We talked about Pete Rose playing first place. Pete Rose plays 162 games. He plays every single game at first base. He has 739 plate appearances at the age of 39. So there's no doubting the fact that Pete Rose was a major factor in them winning the World Series that year. The center fielder was a guy by the name of Gary Maddox, who was an eight-time gold glover, not much of an offensive player. He never makes an all-star team. I'm looking at his averages here. I don't think he he maybe has one year where he hits over 300. Yeah, one year. He he hits 319 one year in San Francisco, and then he hits, uh, I think, 330 one year for Philly. But by and large, does not have a great offensive legacy, but he wins eight gold gloves in center field. And it leads to that old joke about how two thirds of the world is covered by water. And the other third is covered by Gary Maddox. So, you know, some really, some, some really interesting guys on the team led of course, by Schmidt, who is far and away an all time great and a first ballot hall of famer 
He's already won um, in eight. Actually, I shouldn't say he's already won. 80 is the first of back to back MVP years for Mike Schmidt at 30 years of age. He wins MVP in both 1980 and 1981, and then actually wins another one in 1986 at the age of 36. So he is the linchpin around this around which this team is built. And then I just want to take a quick look here. The the ace of the staff without question is Steve Carlton. Carlton goes 24 and nine with a 2.34 ERA. He's, he's getting up there in age by this point too. He's, he's 35 in the 1980 season, but he wins the Cy Young award and then actually goes on and win another one. Two years later, leads the league in wins also leads the league in starts at that age, 38 starts lead the league in complete games with 19. So if you're doing some quick math there, he went, he, pitches a complete game in exactly half of his starts. Uh, I'm sorry, that's actually in 82 that he does that. He, 19 complete games and 38 starts. In 80, he also leads the league and starts with 38 and only has 13 complete games. So two very impressive seasons in his mid to late 30s for Steve Carlton. He'd also won a Cy Young in 1972 in his very first year with Philly. And he also wins one in 77. So a four-time Cy Young award winner. Steve Carlton, maybe a guy who doesn't get as much as talked about as some other guys, but he's more, probably one of the three or four best left-handed pitchers of all time. So that's the that's far and away the ace of their staff. The beyond that, they're sort of a little bit they don't have anybody else really noteworthy on their starting pitching staff. Their number two is a guy by the name of Dick uh, Ruthian, uh, who's twenty-nine years old and goes seventeen and ten. They have a guy by the name of Marty Bystrom, who they refer to as their secret weapon. He's a rookie who joins the team and late in the year as a starter, starts five games and has a 1.5 ERA and a 5-0 and record. And then their closer is Tug McGraw, who is also an old man. He's 35 as well. He had come up to the major leagues with the Mets and had been on both the 69 team that won the World Series and then the 73 Mets team that lost in the World Series to Oakland in seven games. That was the famous you got to believe team. And Tug McGraw was actually the guy who coined that you got to believe phrase that came to symbolize those 73 Mets. He joins the Phillies in 75 and he's their closer and another guy who's beloved on the team in the city of Philadelphia and becomes another one of these kind of symbols of this 1980 Phillies team. So the point a lot of people point to with this team is the, is in August, August 10th, I believe is the exact date here after falling seven to one to the pirates in the first game of a scheduled doubleheader green lit into his squad. And this is a, recounting of an article by a, a Philadelphia famous Philadelphia sports writer legend. I, I remember him when I was in college, mostly writing, if not exclusively about the Eagles at that point, but that was almost 30 years later named Ray Didinger. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is the the article from the time it's, and I don't, I'm not bleeping these out because I don't know what he's saying. The article I see here all says bleeping, but you can use your imagination. This bleeping game isn't easy. Green screamed. It's tough, especially when you have injuries, but you guys have got to get your bleeping heads down. You've got to stop being so bleeping cool. Get that through your bleeping heads. If you don't, you'll be so bleeping buried. It ain't going to be funny. Get the bleep out of your bleep. 
Green said, and just be the way you can be because you're a good bleeping baseball team, but you're not now and you can't look in the bleeping mirror and tell me you are. You tell me you can do it, but you bleep and give up. If you don't want a bleeping play, get the bleep in that manager's office and bleeping tell me because I don't want a bleeping play you. And then the writer says, Green's verbal assault didn't have immediate effect as the squad promptly went out and lost the second game. <laughs> in the Ginger article, it says, and this is a very, you'll get a kick out of this from the sort of context time, because remember, this is August of 1980. The Phillies have about as much chance of winning the National League East as Ted Kennedy has of stealing the Democratic nomination away from Jimmy (laughs) Carter. (laughs) But like a crusty old campaign manager, Dallas Green is not about to concede until the last delegate is counted. And then just Kennedy almost did it. Yeah. (laughs) So there you go. It's funny, too, because at this he Kennedy also was the manager of the Expos at the time, too. Right. No, that's No. no, that that's 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 very wrong. What says one day and then I'm reading this is a contemporary article or more contemporary than that. It says one day after the Dallas meeting, the players held a meeting of their own, essentially decided to play for themselves and forget about green. (laughs) Um, And then the Phillies caught fire later in 80 in a chase with the Expos for the National League East. And this is a time when, again, you had to win your division and then you would be in the the championship, you know, with against the team from the National League West. So it comes down to the second to last day of the season against the Expos and the Phillies win the pennant on that second to last day of the season. So they end up edging out the Expos by one game to advance to the NLCS for, I guess, the fourth time in five years. But this one felt a little different because they'd uh, come from behind to get it. And to their credit for once, they're not going to be playing the Dodgers. They're not going to be playing the Reds. They're going to be playing a different team. The Houston Astros. And it's funny, this Astro team, and this is something that that's been in the news very recently due to somebody who passed away. And that was J.R. Richard, who passed away. He was the star pitcher for the Astros. He was, I think uh, he'd been on, on the Astros for most of the seventies and we'll talk about this more when we do our in memoriam, but he had a stroke and he ended up, he, he obviously survived it. He just passed away in 2021, but they've often talked about if Richard had not had that stroke, maybe the Phillies would have won. Well, I'm sorry. Maybe Houston would have actually won that NLCS, but as, as things turned out, they, they didn't, it takes five games and uh, 10 innings in game five, but the, Phillies defeat the Astros in five games. They win game five, eight to seven, and they end up going to the World Series. They finished 35 and 19 after that August 10th speech I was just talking about. This NLCS we do have to talk about is insane. So yeah. three out of five. Phillies have home field. Uh, they win game one, three to one. Carlton pitches really well. Tug McGraw gets the save. Phillies hold on. Phillies win three to one. That is the only nine-inning game in this series. You go to game two at Veterans Stadium the next day. Houston wins seven to four. Philadelphia is up two to one going into the seventh inning. Houston ties it in the seventh. They both score a run in the eighth. Houston scores four runs in the top of the 10th. And then the Phillies get a run in the bottom of the 10th. Phillies only have four runs on 14 hits in the game. And the Phillies could have won that game. I don't know. I don't know which inning it was. I think it was the eighth inning. They could have taken the lead, 
that probably, you know, that, that if they then close them out in the ninth would have been, that would have been the game, but there was a mix up in the third base coach, a guy by the name of Lee Elia, who later goes on to manage the Cubs and go on a famous rant about how horrible Cub fans are. There's a miscommunication between him and a base runner. And he actually as the third base coach is blamed for this loss and takes the blame in the papers the next day. So they come very close to putting the Astros on ice after only two games, but they don't, they lose an extra innings and they go back to Houston tied at one. So the series shifts to Houston and this game three goes 11 innings. There is no score for the first 10 innings. Houston wins the game in the bottom of the 11th. Joe Morgan led off the inning for the Astros in the bottom of the 11th with a triple. The Phillies loaded the bases with intentional walks, and Denny Walling hit a sack fly to bring in the run, give the Phillies a or give the Astros a win and put the Phillies on death's door down two games to one. They've lost two straight extra inning games, and they have to play a game four the next day in Houston with a must-win scenario. They go down one to nothing. They score three runs in the eighth. Hang on, the math on this doesn't work. Oh, okay, okay. They're down two to nothing. They score three runs in the top of the eighth to go up three to two. In the bottom of the ninth, Astros tie the game on an RBI single by Terry Poole, P-U-H-L. Then in the 10th, two outs, score tied at three to three. Greg Luzinski comes in as a pinch hitter, doubles home Pete Rose with the go-ahead run with Rose running over Astros catcher Bruce Bochy. They get another run, and it says game four of this, just for context, Saturday afternoon that ran into the early evening NCAA football game between Houston and Texas A&M had to been scheduled to begin at 7 p.m. Rather than move the... I don't know where this is going, but I got to see this. Game four of the series was a Saturday afternoon that ran into the early evening. An NCAA football game between the university. I thought this was going to be about TV, but it's not. Between the University of Houston and Texas A&M had been scheduled to begin at seven. Rather than move the game to a different day or another stadium, the schools elected to play the game at the Astrodome as scheduled. (laughs) The conversion of the Astrodome from baseball from baseball to football took several hours and the football game did not kick off until 11:33 p.m. The game ended at 2:41 a.m. with Houston taking a 17 to 13 victory over Texas A&M. Oh, and then I didn't even realize this. Game 5 was in Houston too. So then they had to turn back around and turn the game over, turn the turn the field over to play game 5 at Houston. The next day. So, so they, they ended a game early evening and played a baseball game there the next day. And in the middle, they played a whole college football game. There. We're running a little long here as usual. So look it up. There's also a crazy play in the fourth inning of this game involving a, an umpire, Doug Harvey, who's actually in the Hall of Fame, who where there's a question about whether the pitcher catches the ball or not on the line drive by Gary Maddox and Harvey's first signals that there's no catch, but then when they appeal the call, they call they call the base runners out and they end up having to salt with the National League president who's sitting at the sitting, you know, uh, you know, up the baseline and the, the 20 minutes of arguing that delays the 
game. It kind of reminds me of the, the, the World Series that the Nationals were in in 2019 with Trey Turner when he was just kept screaming to the umpire, go ask him, go ask him, pointing to Joe Torre. So that's a crazy game. And then they go to game five the next day. And this is so Philly is down five to two going into the top of the eighth. And then they score five runs to take a seven, five lead. Houston ties it back up in the bottom of the seventh. And then they end up going, I'm sorry, in the bottom of the eighth. And then they end up going into a 10th inning and Philly beats the Astros. They, they win it in, in 10, eight to seven to go to the world series. And I just want to look here. I had been looking before that because I think the, the, the let the inning, the 10th inning of this, of this game five is really, it's really interesting. Just bear with me here for, for one second. Um, it's the top of the eighth. They go in and incidentally, Nolan Ryan is pitching for the Phillies or for the Astros in this game. So they go into the top of the eighth in game five of the LCS Phillies down five to two. Larry Boa singles, Bob Boone singles to the pitcher. So that must just mean that a catcher beat the catcher, Bob Boone, somehow beat out a play and they got runners on first and second. And then Greg Gross bunts for the Phillies. Nobody's out. They load the bases. Pete Rose walks to score a run. Then they take Ryan out. And then Keith Moreland, the pinch hitter, grounds out to score another run and that's five to four. And then they have a single later on and then a triple by Manny trio. Who's the MVP of the series. But the first five batters, Philly hits the ball out of the infield. Maybe once they record only one out and they score two runs and the bases are still loaded or the biggest is runners on uh, first and third. So a crazy way to get back into a game in an LCS, which you probably would not see today. So the Phillies win the pennant and four straight extra inning games. Phillies win two. Astros win two. Phillies won two out of three. They won two straight in Houston with Houston having a chance to close the series out both times with that Houston-Texas A&M game sliced in the middle there. Talk about, we were talking about sort of interesting um periods to be at stadiums that's a good one just in 32 hours yeah so the world series is going to pit philly against the kansas city royals we mentioned both teams that had sort of gotten over their you know had gotten over their hump of losing in the championship series i believe this is kansas city is the first non-original eight team to make a world series in this they became the second expansion team and the first from the american league to appear in the world series yeah i mean the mets obviously Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, they're the first American League Amer- expansion team. Yep. So, this series, the Phillies win game one, and you can kind of stop me whenever you go. Phillies win game one, seven to six. They get up early. They score five runs in the third. They're up seven to four. Royals score two runs in the bottom of or top of the eighth because uh, these games are Veteran Stadium. Uh, but the Phillies hang on and win seven to six. Uh, they had not won a World Series game since game one of the 1915 World Series. So 65 years. 50 by the Yankees. Yep. So this, yeah. So Phillies win that game. Game two, Steve Carlton goes. Phillies also win. The game gets kind of crazy late. It's nothing, nothing in the fifth. Phillies get two. 
Kansas City scores one in the sixth and three in the seventh to take a four to two lead. And then in the bottom of the eighth, uh, the Phillies off of Royals closer, Dan Quisenberry, they get four runs. Del Unser has an RBI double to cut it to four to three. Rose grounds out to move Unser to third. Bake McBride with a single pass to draw in an infield ties the game. Mike Schmidt gives an RBI to give them the lead. And then Keith Moreland brings it out to six to four. They bring in Carlton. Uh, Carlton comes out in the ninth. They bring in Ron Reed and the Phillies close the door and go up two to nothing heading out to Missouri. They, they do what they have to. So game three uh, is an extra inning game. We're, and we're out in Kansas City now. The Royals win four to three in extra innings. In the bottom of the 10th, George Brett, who had just come back after surgery, had just come back after game two. Willie Akins drove in Willie Wilson with a single to left feet, left center off Tug McGraw. So the Royals get back in the series two to one. And then in the in game four, also in Kansas City, Kansas City gets five runs in the first two innings. They're up five to one. Phillies score a few runs late, but the Royals hold on. They win five to three. So the series is now tied at two to two with game five in Kansas City the next day. So you're in, you're having a, you know, you're now at a three game series. The home team has won the first four games of the series. So you said George Brett had come back after surgery. Do you know what that surgery was? No. He left game two. He he because I I remember Brett hit a big home run off Goose Gossage in the 1980 LCS. So it was like it couldn't have been that long of a surgery. And I had forgotten this story. And then once I just looked it up, I saw it. He had to leave game two early with painful hemorrhoids and then had minor surgery on them and was able to play again in game three. Okay. So that was the nature of the surgery. All right. So so we move on to game five and they're uh, they're tied at two going into game five. Yep. So this game is also in Kansas City. Game was scoreless. First three innings. Another close game goes into the top of the ninth with the Phillies down three to two. So they're in their last last chance to tie the game. Schmidt leads off with an infield single. Then uh, Del Unser comes up as a pinch hitter. Hits a double, ties the game. Gary Maddox grounds out to third. Those two outs, and then Trio hits a go drives in the go ahead run with a line shot off Quisenberry. So it hits Quisenberry, but as an infield hit, he was almost thrown out by Brett, but gets to the bag in time. Phillies take the lead. Bottom of the ninth, two men on with one out. McCray hits a ball down the line, just foul. Would have been a walk off home run. Grounds out, and then with the bases loaded, McGraw works a strikeout and gets the win to bring the Phillies to within a game of a world championship, heading back to Philadelphia for game six, Tuesday, October 21st, 1980, Veterans Stadium. Steve Carlton on the mound. Yeah, and that's who you'd want on the mound. You'd want one of the best left-handed pitchers of all time, a guy who'd won a World Series for Cy Youngs. That's... You got one of the best pitchers of all time going for you in the deciding game of the World Series. It's hard to beat that. And not a whole lot of drama in this one. I mean, there's plenty of drama, but not drama in the outcome of the game. Phillies get two in the fourth, one in the fifth, one in the sixth, go up four to nothing. In the eighth, Kansas City gets one run. McGraw comes in and shuts the door. 
and the Phillies win their first world championship. This is with their victory. The Phillies became the last of the original 16 franchises to win a world series. Although the St. Louis Browns never won a world series in St. Louis. Mike Schmidt was officially the MVP, although the Babe Ruth award, which was another world series MVP was given to Tug McGraw. Yeah. Schmidt six for 21, two homers, seven RBIs, 381 batting average. You kind of like it sometimes, especially when it's a team that only wins one and that hadn't won in a while. Sometimes it's cool when an obscure guy wins an MVP award, you know, Ray Knight for the Mets in 86, or what's another good example of this? Um, I'm trying to think of another good, uh, another good guy, you know, David Freeze for the Cardinals that year. But it, it, I think it's fitting given how important Schmidt was to the city and to the franchise and bringing home their first ever championship. I, it's fitting that he was the guy who won the World Series MVP. So let's just play it forward with them a little bit. The next year in 81, and obviously 81 is weird with the strike year. They are not a factor. Or excuse me, they, they lose in that weird opening round in 1981 because there was more playoffs mm-hmm. that year. So they lose that. 82, they finish. 89 and 73, they finish three games out. They finish in second, which would have been behind the Cardinals, I'm guess, because the Cardinals were in the East, right? Yeah, yeah. They lose to the Cardinals. Then in 83, they have sort of the last hurrah for this team. They get to the World Series. They win 90 games. They get to the World Series. They lose to the Orioles in five games. And that's kind of it for this team. Hover around 500. They never really get their highest finish is in 1986. They finish in second, but that's 21 games behind the Mets. Then they kind of bottom out for a while, and it's not until 1993 when a totally different team makes the World Series with lots of guys who have not exactly distinguished themselves in their post-baseball careers. No. And Mitch Williams and the famous Joe Carter home run. And then, you know, they enter another era of ups and downs and finally get good in the late 2000s. And in 2008, they win the franchises, just their second world championship ever uh, over the Tampa Bay Rays. A couple notes I want to just bring up before we move on to the last team. First of all, late in 1980, Tim McCarver had been a catcher with the Phillies for a long time, and he retired it for the 79 season to become a broadcaster. And then for some reason, I guess they were short on players, but late in the 1980 season, they actually brought Tim McCarver back for like two weeks and he get, gets in a couple games, he pinch hits. And it's kind of neat because I think it's after they won the pennant and they they're interviewing Steve Carlton. There's somebody in the locker room and Tim McCarver is doing the interview, but he's in his uniform. He's acting as a broadcaster, but he's, he's been playing for the last two weeks. So I thought that was kind of cool. The other thing that's worth noting, and I hadn't realized this green. And I don't know the backstory of this, Green really wears out his welcome. He only manages the team one more year in 81. He's gone by 82. He's replaced by a guy by the name of Pat Corrales, who actually himself gets fired or leaves, I assume gets fired midway through the 83 season, and then is replaced by the general manager, Paul Owens, who takes him to the World Series. So I'm going to point that out at the end of these teams we're talking about. Only Billy Cunningham is around much longer. Dick Vermeil is gone after 1982. Quinn with the Flyers is gone after 81 and Dallas Green is gone after 81. So despite teams being good by 1983, three of the four guys are gone. And then the only other thing I wanted to mention was that if you look up this team 
specifically the 80 team, but really any of the teams from around this general time period on baseball reference, they have one of the coolest logos that I've ever seen in baseball. Did you see it? Let me pull it up again here. 1980 Phillies you're talking about? Yeah, it really could be any of those teams from around that era. It's like a like a square type thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it says Phillies on the bottom, but then it's a colonial man and what looks like a colonial boy sort of sitting and standing on the little thing where it says Phillies. You just look it up. It's hard to describe. It looks, but it's just like it's it just the neatest thing. I don't know. It's just it, it's like it's like something that would be like a cartoon from like 1971, like a Saturday morning oh, cartoon or something. Schoolhouse Rock cartoon. Say again. Looks like a schoolhouse rock cartoon. Yeah, it does look kind of like that, doesn't it? Or it, what it really looks like to me is a. It looks like a sign that would have been at a bar I went to in college. Yeah, yeah, that's it. that's like the name of a bar. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, Phillies get the championship. Shall we move on? Stay in the same stadium and just go forward a little bit. Yep. Let's do the Eagles. We've as as always. We've you know we've we've spoken quite a bit, so we want to make sure we give the Eagles their due here. So let's just set the stage a little bit from 1960 to 1977. The Eagles are a bad team. You know, they win the championship in 19th and I don't just mean morally like usual. I mean, on the T on the field 60 after they win that championship through 77, they're not a good team. They don't make the playoffs. There's actually, well, that's actually a little later, which I'll touch on, but they're, you know, they're not a marquee team in the NFL as it's expanding in the seventies. A lot of attention has been paid to how bad the giants were in that era. And the Eagles were kind of just as bad or not quite there, but you know, that division is the Dallas Cowboys division to own. And the Eagles 78 is the year they make the playoffs for the first time. 76 is when Dick Vermeil takes over. They make the playoffs in 78 for the first time. I've talked often about how the, quote unquote miracle at the Meadowlands was the best thing that ever happened to the Giants because they were a bad team anyway and it was a wake up call to them. From an Eagles standpoint, that was a huge win because they were in a playoff hunt for the first time in a very long time. So that was a win that they needed to have. They win that game, they get to the playoffs, they lose in the wild card round uh, in 1978. 79, they are back in the playoffs and they actually get to the divisional round and lose to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, who we've talked about in our Tampa Bay sports special, that that team sort of out of nowhere has that great year and gets to the NFC Championship game. And barely loses to the Rams, yeah. You know, Vermeil came in and instituted kind of uh, almost a precursor to like modern coaching in terms of like analytics and focus on a lot of like finer points and things like that. You know, I don't want to say like disciplinarian in the strictest sense of the word, but more like very like technocratic Belichick and sort of the attention to little things when a lot of, I mean, think about it. The coach of the Raiders a few years before that was John Madden. John Madden was a bad coach, but he was very much like, you know, "Ah, you put your guys in the position to win the game and tell them to get out there and win the game. Vermeil's kind of got that Bill Walsh type of thing where he's almost professorial. Yeah. And he's also a guy who just, puts in hours he's he's one of these guys who and a lot of them probably do it now who famously sleeps at his office during the season in fact he's got such an interesting career and i'd imagine i still think he should probably be in the hall of fame and actually it's funny the probably the best guy on this eagle team on either side of the ball is harold carmichael the wide receiver who just this week went into the hall of fame and in his hall of fame speech 
acknowledged Dick Vermeil and said that Vermeil should probably, you know, should be in the Hall of Fame too. Vermeil, you said he leaves the Eagles after what, the 82 season? Is that what you said? And he is so burned out on coaching that he takes a full 15 years off before he comes back with the Rams in the late 90s and then gets his Super Bowl with that greatest show on turf Rams team and then promptly retires again. So, yeah, he's kind of like one of these first guys who just it's all about just preparation, preparation, preparation. So this 80 team starts off and they had some expectations, but I don't think they were considered like, first of all, you still have the Steelers dynasty. So there nobody knew it was over yet. So, you know, obviously they're a factor. And in the NFC, people are still, you know, the Cowboys and the Rams had won the NFC the year before, but it's a transition time, even if nobody knows it yet. You know, you're moving from the 70s into the next year as the 49ers begin their dynasty. So the Eagles start out really, really good. They win their first three. They lose to the Cardinals, and then they go on a really long win streak, eight games. So they're 11-1 with four games left in the season. And then they hit kind of a rough patch. They lose by one to San Diego. They then lose the next week at home to Atlanta by three. Then they beat the Cardinals in week 15, 17 to three to get themselves to 12 and three. And then they lose to the Cowboys in week 16 by ace, but they had done enough to still hold on to the division. So they must've wrapped up the division the week before. Let me jump in on this here. This is a great story. They go into the last game against Dallas Dallas needs to beat them by more than 25 (laughs) to win the division late in the game. It's 35, 10. So they're right on the cusp of this happening. The Eagles score 17 points to make it 35 to 27. After they score the second touchdown, they're celebrating like they just won the game. (laughs) it's like if you didn't, if you were just dropped in, you'd think that they were gambling on the game because like, oh, maybe they just covered the spread. But no, Dallas has this seemingly insurmountable threshold that they have to cross of winning by more than 25, which is hard to do against another good team. And they're doing it more than 25 or just 25. I saw more than 25 on the documentary that I watched. He was trying to kill the clock down 25. (laughs) (laughs) Last game of the NHL, I think the last Islander game this year was a thing where a tie didn't help them at all, but a, or not even a tie. If a game went to overtime, they were locked into like a lower seed. But if it went to, if they won, they were locked into a higher seed Mm -hmm. with the score tied late. They pulled their goalie to try to win. Yeah, why not? Anything to do with them. Yeah. So I just want to talk about a couple of these players here. The quarterback is Jaworski, Ron Jaworski. He's in his fifth year. Jaworski, he's I what would you call him? I mean, later he's been around. He's been an NFL commentator for many, many years. I'd call him sort of a solid NFL quarterback. I would say he was better than solid given what a lot of quarterback play looked like at the time. You know, he wasn't great. I think at his best, he was good. Probably got more out of what his talent level was than should be expected. We talked a little bit about Harold Carmichael again. I just watched him be inducted into the Hall of Fame just a, a couple of couple of days ago. He finally got in. He actually he was actually a year late. He got in on the 2020 ballot, but that was delayed because of COVID. He finally got inducted. Maybe not 
a first tier Hall of Famer, but a guy who probably deserves it. Four time pro bowler, all 1970s team leads the league in receiving one year. He has one, two, three, three seasons over 1000 yards as a receiver. He's also just really known as a really just a good guy. He's man of the year this this season. He's man of the year in 1980. So he's probably the best offensive player. They also have a guy named Wilbert Montgomery, who's the starting running back, who not a guy with a super long career, but this guy has a hell of a year in 1980 here. He rushes for, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Actually, his best year was the year before. His best year was 79, where he had 1,512 rushing yards and 2,006 yards from scrimmage. Both the, the 2006 leads the league. He also fumbles it. I think, is that fumbles there? Yeah, he he fumbles the ball 14 times in 1979. So he has both a good year stats-wise and a, a crazy year as far as the fumbles are concerned. Not quite as good a season in 1980. He misses four games with an injury, but bounces back the following year in 81 with another 1,400 rushing yards. So he probably, I don't know. I saw Andrew, you shook your head a little bit when I said that Carmichael was the best player. Were you thinking of Montgomery? Well, Charlie Johnson was also an all pro that year, the nose tackle. I was going to get to him in a second. Yeah. Charlie Johnson, all pro nose tackle. Charlie Johnson, three interceptions as a nose guard. He's probably the leader of the defense. This really is a no name defense. This number 80- one ranked defense in the league, too. Points in terms of points, but I'm just looking. Claude Humphrey, who's the the start one of the starting defensive ends, he's a six time Pro Bowler and he's in the Hall of Fame. Although his best years are with Atlanta prior to coming to Philadelphia, and then other than that, Herm Edwards, who was famous for recovering that fumble at the Miracle at the Meadowlands a few years previous, and would later go on to coach both the Jets and the Chiefs in the NFL. He's another one, but there's really just not a lot of names really, I guess on either side of the ball on this Eagle team, the starting fullback is a guy by the name of Leroy Harris. And on the the documentary that I watched, it was one of these, you know, half hour stories of the season. And somebody, I think it was one, another player, or maybe it was a sports writer said that Harris is having a good season because he finally stopped quote chain eating donuts. So I don't know if that was actually what he was doing or if that was just a metaphor for being fat. Nobody could possibly chain eat donuts. (laughs) I never knew what chain smoking was. Like, they basically just means like you, as soon as you stop smoking one, you start smoking another one. No matter how big you are, and I mean, how big was a, a guy back then, you can't just, I mean, there's a limit to how many donuts you can eat. Yeah, let me see what his, he was 35 pounds. What'd you say? He probably weighed 235 pounds. <laughs> he was 5'9, 226. <laughs> Great. I feel good about myself now. Um, <laughs> Which, I mean, that's that's heavy, but you're right. It's not super, super big. Not, not for an NFL player. It's not. No, no, probably not in those days. Well, well what was Joe Morris? Because Joe Morris, I think, was about that height. I bet you Joe Morris was quite a bit less. He's He's just the first sort of short running back that I can think of from round about the same era. So let me about the, uh, the playoffs while you're looking that up. Joe Morris, five, seven, one ninety five. So considerably less. Yeah. So anyway, and then the, the only other thing I wanted to mention before we get to the playoffs is 
these uniforms are bizarre. Yeah, they're a little different there because for a while that you see the Eagles in like the white helmets in like the 70s. Yeah. Mid to late 80s, they're wearing like the Kelly green with the silver pants, which I really like the look of. This is kind of like, I don't know, this to me is very early 80s, like it, 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 which I mean makes sense, but it just, it really is like, it reminds me of like old computers for some reason. Like, yeah, it has that look. It's like the green with like the silverish white and the, the, the whole it reminds me of like a commercial for the Macintosh computer. <laughs> like the whole sleeve is white. You know, it's not like it's not like it's just got a little bit of piping. It's like the whole thing is the piping. Look it up. It, we're not necessarily doing it justice, but they're just, they're very strange looking uniforms. Mm-hmm. All right. So why don't we talk about their playoff run in 1980? So we're in the era of five teams. So the three division winners and then uh, two wild cards. So if you win your division, you get a buy. So the Eagles are the two seed this year so they do not play in the in the first round their first playoff game is against the atlanta falcons or no excuse me minnesota I believe, right? minnesota vikings yep it is against minnesota uh january 3rd 1981 divisional playoffs at the vet the eagles win 31 to 16 they force eight turnovers seven of which are in the second half vikings only 215 yards of offense Eagles would also beat them 42 to seven in the regular season. Um, so, you know, the Eagles pretty dominant. Eric Kramer has a rough day at the office, especially, like I said, in the second half when the Eagles just keep getting turnovers and scoring. So win that game fairly easily. Uh, the number one seed was the Atlanta Falcons, who in the same round the next day, are upset by the Dallas Cowboys, or I don't even know if it's an upset, but seating-wise, it's an upset, which sets the stage. If you're an Eagles fan, hard to imagine a better scenario against what you consider your biggest rival, the team that has dominated the division and the conference for really a decade and a half, if we're being honest. You're going to get an NFC Championship game in your building with the Dallas Cowboys, Sunday, January 11th, 1981, in doing my research for this game, this is, and it ties into something you were talking about a couple of minutes ago. This is the last time a certain thing happened. The last time a certain thing happened? Leading to the Cowboys. I know it's the end of the line for Staubach. Um, was a quarterback in 1980? Uh, oh, he was in 79. Let me look at 80. Was Oh, no, he was gone by seven. Sorry, 79 was his last year. 80, 80 was Danny White. I don't know. What is it? It's the last time they wore their royal blue uniforms. Really? Look at the uniforms they wore that year. That's the last time for those uniforms. The next year they went to the navy blues that you see today. Wow. It was another one of the the Eagles used to wear, usually wore their greens at home. They did the make the Cowboys wear their blue jerseys. So the Eagles wore white at home for this game, which a lot of teams did back then. And still sometimes to this day that it's like a superstition that the Cowboys only like, you know, don't like to wear their blue jerseys. But um, yep, I didn't know that's the last time the Cowboys wore that particular sort of the ice bowl era jerseys. Mm hmm. 
So the Eagles win this game 20 to seven. You know, as you can imagine, it's a very cold day, 17 degrees, no precipitation, but 17 degrees. It's tied at halftime. Eagles score 10 points in the third quarter to get up 22 seven or excuse me, 17 to seven. And then they add a field goal in the, uh, in the fourth quarter to get it to 20 to seven. So, you know, the Eagles dominate the second half and punch their ticket to their first Super Bowl. Ron Jaworski only nine of 29 for 91 yards, but you know, it's cold weather football and the Eagles beat the Cowboys to advance to their first Super Bowl in, uh, you know, first championship game since 1960 and their first Super Bowl. Yeah, and then they go to this Super Bowl against the Raiders, and I don't know how much there really is. They're never really in this game. Yeah, the the only it's seven nothing early, and the Eagles have what would be a touchdown, but there's an illegal motion penalty on Harold Carmichael, and the Eagles never recovered. Again, not having seen this game live, but like people talk a lot about the Giants Ravens two thousand game, and. Oh, the Giants had an interception that would have been a touchdown, but Keith Hamilton called got called for defensive holding. And then they go like, oh, the game might have been different if that hadn't happened. Well, no, they lost 34 to 7. That's kind of what I look at with this is it's like, okay, yeah, it was would have been seven to seven. Maybe it would have been a little closer for a little while longer. The fact is it was still a 27 to 10 game that was at the end of the third quarter was 24 to 3. So no, I don't think the Eagles would have won this game. Yeah, and Jaworski doesn't have a great game here either. He's 18 for 38, one touchdown, but three interceptions. A couple of things here. The Raiders are the first team, first wild card team to win the Super Bowl. It was also apparently there was a little controversy going into this that if the Raiders won, would Roselle hand the trophy to Al Davis? Because the Raiders had already tried to leave and the league had blocked it to go to L.A. Yep. So they... Two years later, they ultimately did go to L.A. And when they won the Super Bowl in 1983, they were the Los Angeles Raiders. This was also how I talked about the last game was the last time something happened. This was the first, not besides the wild card thing, this was the first time something happened in the Super Bowl having to do with the two teams who played. Having to do with the two teams who played. Huh. It That's very general, I know, but... Eesh. You got me. It was the first time that a team avenged a regular season loss in the Super Bowl. So it was the first time they beat a team they'd lost to in the regular season in the Super Bowl. Well, I guess that wouldn't have even started until Super Bowl five. So I guess that's not too surprising. No, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a first. So, you know, as we're coming to an end here, you've now gone through a, a sort of seven. Oh, and I guess we'll play it forward on the Eagles. Um, this doesn't last too long. Yeah, and if you look at that roster, you understand why it's not. There's just there's just not a lot of there. And like I said, I think you're in a transition time in the NFC. The next year is the 49ers. Washington, the early 80s, Theismann, Washington teams. I mean, the next four years are the 49ers in Washington. The Bears and the Giants are on the ascendancy. And then by the late 80s, the Eagles are a factor again, but it's a totally different team. This is just sort of you catch a weird transition where, you know, the Cowboys are moving on. And, you know, you look at some of the teams in the NFC playoffs this year. Atlanta is the number one seed. I mean, right off the top of your head, can you name a guy who was on the 1980 Atlanta Falcons? Was Billy White Shoes Johnson there? I don't know. I'm not going to look it up. Um, <laughs> Minnesota was the three seed, and I know they'd been good in the 70s, but that thing was coming to an end. The Purple People Eaters, 
you know, the Cowboys, like, like we talked about, were in a bit of a, uh, in a bit of flux and, you know, uh, transitioning from their seventies doomsday Cowboys to their eighties doomsday for themselves. Cowboys, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a little bit of sort of like a, a, a weird inflection year. The next year they get a wild card lose at home to the giants. That's LT's rookie year. Then the NFC becomes a three-team race for a little while with the Redskins, the Cowboys, and the Giants. And then in the late 80s, the NFC East, they take the Cowboys' place, but it's still a Redskins and Giants division. And the Eagles, they go through a few iterations, the Buddy Ryan teams, the Andy Reid teams, and finally win the Super Bowl uh, several years ago with the Philly Special and Nick Foles. But um, this 80s team was kind of a, uh, I don't want to say flash the paper, like a flash across the sky. You know what I mean? For a while, that was all Eagles fans had to hold their hat on. Yeah, and I do view this team as sort of a one-year wonder. I don't necessarily... like so like the 85 Bears only made one Super Bowl, but they were good, really good every single year. Yeah, this Eagle team was in the playoffs a couple of times, but I don't know. Yeah, this to me, it's kind of like... This is like the uh, the 85 Patriots or the Ram team from the year before in 79. This is very much, I think, kind of a one-year wonder type of team. Yep, I agree. Which in a lot of ways makes it the opposite of the other three. Yeah, well, and that's what I was talking about, is you have the four teams sort of come to it, and the narrative is different for all of them. The Flyers were a team that had already won a couple, and they're you know having like a last hurrah. The Sixers were a team that had been good but hadn't won and would finally get one a couple years later. The Phillies, this was sort of the culmination. They did get the championship. And then the Eagles were the team that sort of one-year wonder, flash across the sky, special year, but didn't get it done and had to wait a lot longer. So, there, you know, sort of a different arc for each of the four teams. But, you know, to sum it up, and I know like we've talked about, we've gone really long already, just for a little bit of additional whatever in the 1980 season you had Villanova Penn and LaSalle all made the NCAA tournament just to throw that in there it's a seven month span where if you're a a across the board Philadelphia fan you got to see all of your teams get to a championship you got to see a championship you got to see two of your teams lose to budding dynasties, the Showtime Lakers and the early 80s Islanders. You got to see the Eagles finally play in a Super Bowl, which, you know, if you think about it in 1980, how many teams had represented the NFC in the Super Bowl? The Cowboys, the Vikings, the Packers, a couple other exceptions here in the Colts, but like, it wasn't like, oh, everybody's played in a Super Bowl. No, Uh, it's a lot of teams, Giants, Bears, that would later... Lions... 49ers at that point. Yeah, I'm, I'm just talking more teams. I guess Giants and 49ers, teams that would later go on to represent quite a few hadn't done it yet. Oh, yeah. So a really special time, I feel like, for a city. I feel like if they got one more, it would be much more in the popular imagination. But, uh, you know, just kind of a cool little run there. And certainly some... I think of it as like a Venn diagram. You had some teams that were on their way down. You had some teams that were on their way up. You had some teams that were flares, but they all kind of converged in this 
area in South Philadelphia for like a seven month period where you got to see all four of your teams be very, very close to a championship. If you think about it, the Eagles were obviously one game away and the Flyers and Sixers were each two games away from a championship. And I also think it's worth noting that entertainment options weren't what they were, weren't what they are now, obviously, and probably weren't even what they would be 10 years later. So there's just so much, you know, the fact that you're, if you're just the guy sitting in his chair, drinking a beer, watching TV in Philly after a day of work, you got so much sports to watch big time sports in that seven or eight month period. And just to point one more thing out, um, and this is almost a Buffalo Bills corollary. I talk about if there was one more. Thank God for the Phillies, because if they hadn't won, if they had lost to the Royals, this incredible sort of citywide accomplishment would almost be a punchline now. Yeah. We got all, we'd probably hear more about it if they'd all lost. Yeah, I think you probably would. They got them all to a championship and they all lost in seven months. You know what I mean? So. Definitely. Well, we hope you all enjoyed this, especially those of you who maybe became fans of ours a few months back when we did the LaSalle episodes and have been patiently waiting for another Philly episode. You definitely got it tonight in spades. So until next time, I'm Dan Newman. And I'm Andrew Newman. Goodbye, old sports. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already... We have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month for the Professional Football Researchers Association official podcast. We'll discuss the history of the game, the many names of the game, and so many different things for you, making the history of football not only entertaining, but fun at the same time, as we join you on the Sports History Network on the official PFRA podcast. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.